once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome back to another second hour semi-exciting episode of the personal wealth. Okay, of the personal wealth coach. More than semi-exciting for us. We could have a complete technical collapse like we did last week and just jump into the program. We didn't have a complete technical collapse. We only had half a technical collapse. Yeah, right. I I was able to use the telephone to call in. That You're correct. I just, we weren't able to get hooked up properly together. Horrible. Horrible. Anyway, this is the personal wealth coach. We had, we were going hard on a good subject last hour, but we've got some other questions that have been hanging out there since before the first hour. Uh, do you want to just jump right into them? The, well, the, we got one Brian from Brian. Yeah, go ahead. He has an inherited annuity from his mother, several of them. He wanted to know what's the advantage of deferring the payout over a five-year period. Well, he first, says, I know it defers income taxes over five years, but if I have to pay the income taxes anyway, why not pay it all at once? Well, first off, sorry, Brian. It is, there's not really any good words to say sorry correctly for losing a mother. Um, we are sorry for your loss. The idea here is to look at how much money you're already making and what your tax bracket is now. It kind of dovetails nicely into what we were talking about last hour, wouldn't you think? Can you say succinctly, you think, what's the easiest answer to why you should consider taking it out? Not the purpose all in an annuity. Time? purpose in an annuity is not just to grow. The purpose in an annuity is to defer taxes, and so you pay them later rather than sooner. So paying them all up front kind of defeats the purpose of an annuity. You have the option of paying it out over a five-year period. Now, when over a five-year period, you can wait five years and then pay it out as a lump sum. You can take it out 20% a year. You can do any way you want to. You just have five years to take the money out. You can take it out all at once and you have the money in hand and you pay the taxes and you can go spend it and do whatever you want to with it. Or you can spread it out over five years and maybe not raise your tax bracket. If you're in the 15% tax bracket and, and taking it out all at once raises you into the 20% tax bracket and you don't need the money right away, it doesn't make a lot of sense to raise yourself into a higher tax bracket just to take all the money at once. Yeah, so if we just give you a really, when I say dovetails nicely into uh, what we were talking about last hour, if if you make, if you're already making, say, $45,000 a year and you're single, uh, and you've got some deductions that you can take, you drop you down to just below $40,000 according to taxable income, something below that, well, you're in the 12% rate. If you take... Another, I'm just going to use $40,000 in annuities. Say a big chunk of that is taxable. Uh, say half of it's taxable. I don't know. This is an important thing to do calculations on. Though. So say you have $20,000 of additional taxable income. That income's not taxed at the 12% rate when it goes above $40,525 this year. It's at the 22% rate. You're going to get charged 10% extra on that money. Now, you could take a little bit and out each year to try to stay in your same tax bracket, or you could control when you're earning what to keep your taxes down. That's, what, that's the whole idea behind deferral, is that hopefully you would 
not just be kicking a can down the road because it's fun to kick the can, but rather to say, hey, we're going to try to plan this out so that I pay the lowest amount that I can legally get away with in taxes. They give me five years to do it. So if I take it out over this five-year period, I can keep my taxes low. And I think that's the biggest reason why people would look at it, why I say it dovetailed nicely into what we were talking about last hour, is it gives a really good example of how the tax code can slow down spending. It can slow down reinvestment. Because if you have a lot of gain in something, you want to take that out over a longer period of time so it doesn't cost you as much in taxes. It slows down the transaction. And finding the balance of the right tax rate to the right friction on on interchange of money. And that's really what this is. If you think of it as it's like a, money is a liquid and the hose is the friction. And the thicker the hose, the more friction you have, the smaller room that the money has to flow through. So when, once you find the right pressure and the right volume of, of water to push through there, things will get changed. Congress quite often comes and steps on the hose. Or sometimes it just cuts a hole in the hose and lets it spray out in a different direction. It's not a well-planned thing, but it's a nice kind of example of how you have the access to 100% of the money now. You'll just have to pay a lot more in taxes to do it that way. Or you could take it out over five years and maybe pay less taxes, but you're not going to have a benefit to the economy around you or to yourself. as early. What do you think? Is there an easier way to say that? I think you said it. I don't I don't know if that's this reminds me so much of the way they used to set up taxes religiously, which had more to do with this is a literal truth to that argument about angels dancing on the head of a pen, the debate over how many were doing it. People were using that at the time for tax purposes as well as just the philosophical event, only it was type of tithe. It was just that the church was in control of much of the infrastructure. So they were the ones that were fixing roads and so on. It's an interesting time period. We are now at the point where it's not even as logical as angels dancing on the head of a pen to say how much uh, taxes we have to pay. It's just set up in a really complicated code of bureaucratic stuff that nobody was really in charge of. It's just been collected over a lot of people being in charge. And that's our tax code would be nice to get that simplified. Have I said that before sometime? I think, maybe. Yeah, but it's not going to be. No. No, it's not going to be. I wish it would be, but it's not going to be. We got another question. What are SDR and who use, what are SDR? That's interesting. Who use, and what he's referring to, of course, is uh, special drawing rights, which, by the way, aren't SDRs. They're XDRs, just for no, the yeah, simple purposes. For SDR, for Special drawing rights at the IMF, they are SDRs. Yeah, but their actual symbol is XDR. Oh, yeah, on the, the trade. comes out is XDR. So, so they have a symbol and another symbol, and the symbol that they use is not the other symbol that they used. Sounds like finance. Basically, it's a line of credit, John. It uh, boils down to the fact that small countries can apply to the uh, International Monetary Fund for a loan and it's it's a line of credit that's been assigned in advance by the International Monetary Fund and is assessed from the various countries, and it's allocated among the various countries. China involved, 
the United States is involved based on the size of our economy. We have agreed to supply that much money. It's really not a lot of money in the in the big picture, $250 million or so. Uh, although the the International Monetary Fund is discussing raising the assessment to $650 million. It's still not, I mean, billion, $650 billion. That's, in, in terms of the world economy, it's not a lot of money, and it has an effect on very small countries that are in financial difficulties. In this particular case, it's being discussed because some cases the pandemic has had a disproportionate effect on small, relatively poor countries. Yeah. And so the, and the International Monetary Fund has proposed issuing $650 billion in special drawing rights uh, well, as uh, a reserve against some of these countries collapsing. What, what this is, the IMF was really set up as kind of a chamber of commerce. Um, but a chamber of commerce that could help countries that said, hey, if you're really falling into trouble, you can get a loan from us. You have to follow these specific rules to get the loan. And the loans being provided by the funders of the IMF. Well, that's mostly the United States, but there are other people that are funding it as well. A lot of other people. Yeah, we got about we got about 40% of the contribution. As far as all the other countries combined, they do 60%. We do 40%. So as we're contributing to the IMF, one of the reasons why we do it is that we, we recognize unilaterally across the board having a nasty event occur in a country, whether it's an earthquake or a tsunami or a pandemic, collapsing the trade there when foreign powers, foreign powers being anybody outside the country, may have invested a lot of money in that country for trade purposes. They're losing customers. So what do you do to help with that? And the IMF is standing there to say, hey, you don't really have a lot of assets of your own, but based on what you've done in the past, we think you can afford to pay this back. Now, this this is, SDR is, it, it's more of a political enterprise than anything else, but that's the IMF. What were you going to say? Well, it's a, it's a good investment in some cases. For example, if a small country is in financial trouble, not because of mismanagement, because they've had a disaster, and believe me, the pandemic has been a disaster for many small countries. And they, as a result, are in technically about to go insolvent, and they need a loan. The uh, an SDR is a is a good way to handle that. If you let it, if you say, well, they, it's too bad, so sad. Why are we loaning money to these small countries? Because if their government collapses, they become a failed state, and that's where terrorists can take over. It's basically what happened in Afghanistan. It's happened in Sudan, and we wind up with a lot of problems later. And another failed state that's leading to a crisis on our border, Venezuela uh, and Guatemala. And Guatemala is not a failed state, but it is teetering. It's been teetering for a lot of years. The banana issues are coming. If you don't, it's kind of like fighting a war overseas so you don't have to fight it on your own shore. It costs us less money to give loans to, to governments that aren't, horrible governments to allow them to improve their economy than it does to take their destitute citizens in when they collapse. And this is, this is the big problem. I mean, the Biden administration is a great example here. If anybody had asked during the election, are they pro or anti-refugees? I think it's a pretty easy answer. People would say the Biden administration is pro-refugee. 
Well, they're looking at, well, we can't take all the refugees that are down there right now. There are too many. How do we do this? Even if we expand the numbers and they've just, they're tap dancing all over. They're trying to develop a plan. Refugees are difficult. How do you say no to a family of incredibly destitute people that think that we are their last chance? Well, the answer that works best is to go to the root cause of the destitution and try to prevent it from happening. And that's what the IMF is for. It's why we keep throwing money at the IMF, because refugees are expensive. And nobody really wants to look into the eyes of a crying child and say, go away. It's basically if your neighbor's house is starting to collapse, it's starting to look pretty sad. And your neighbor says, I just don't have the money to fix my house up. It's sometimes it would be in your best interest to loan the money to your neighbor to fix his house up so that the property value of your house doesn't go down. Now, I have been accused of saying that the current system is perfect and that we don't need to make any changes. And, and that's about as far from what we're saying here as is possible. We have a thoroughly broken system when it comes to IMF, to, to refugees, to everything. It's a political system. It's going to be broken. I mean, Winston Churchill's saying democracy is the worst form of government on the planet except for all the others. I tend to agree with that. I, and I take it as humorous as that is, it's pretty serious in my mind. We're not very good at this yet as people. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And how do you give someone a benefit without causing them to be dependent on you? These are all things that need to be debated. And unfortunately, the battle lines are so deeply entrenched that there's no real meaningful debate. We're not talking about the reality of it anymore but rather what we learned in high school or on Facebook instead of saying how do we how do we solve this we could put a big wall up but they just gather on the other side of the wall or they climb the wall that's you know, been tried before there is no land bridge between Europe and the Middle East there's water all the way across there yep so they don't have to put a wall up but they still have a massive refugee problem yep people come in boats they cross in boats and it's really, really hard. We have a really long Gulf Coast. We have a really long California coast. And, and there's and not there's not really a lot you can do at the... I mean, you can do things at the border to slow this down. But that's not where you want to address it. The reality is that if they are starving to death, being incarcerated in the United States is better than starving to death at home. And that's what they'll go with. So that that's one of the big difficult conversation pieces is why would we give money to Haiti? Haiti is not a massive business partner of the United States. And if you're thinking purely from dollars and cents, you might say that's wasted money. But if we keep Haiti from being completely a catastrophe all the time, we don't have people washing up on the shores of Florida that require intensive care to keep them alive because it's not really a good thing to let them die once they once they get here. Nobody would want that. Well, maybe some people would. That's pretty grim. So how do we prevent it? How do we how do we get ahead of that? We could create a fortress, which we would then what shoot them when they show up when they're starving to death. That's that's the same issue that we're running to at the, into at the border, and that the Trump administration was running into. Okay, we'll just let them loose in Mexico. Well, the Mexicans 
said, no, we're not going to let you let them loose here. That's illegal immigrants coming back. Why would we do that? Until the Trump administration said, we'll pay you money. And then they said, sure, we'll take care of the refugees. You pay us to do it. So it's either pay, pay to take care of the refugees in the United States or pay to take care of the refugees outside of the United States. This is something we, we've actually been talking about this for about a decade in relation to Iraq, Syria, and the refugees going up into Turkey and then through into Europe. It's a real deal. We used to have a real refugee problem, uh, a real immigration problem from Mexico. It's very, very minor now. You, you, people coming across the border from Central America. Why is it that we don't have this big surge of people coming from Mexico? They're a poor country. Their currency is in bad shape. There's a lot of things wrong in Mexico. And the reason was over several presidencies, there was a decision made to set up a zone along the border where factories could operate without paying tariffs as the, as the goods went back and forth across the border, the, a, free, a free trade zone along the border of Mexico. And then we set up NAFTA. And the reason for that was it improved the jobs available in Mexico, which meant the Mexicans no longer needed to have come to the United States to get jobs. So if you look at the illegal immigration numbers right now, or you look at the immigration numbers right now, there's actually for several years been more people leaving the United States and going to Mexico than there have been coming out of Mexico and going to the United States. Now, that's not true of the Central American countries because they simply are impoverished. They're full of gangs. They have collapsing governments. And it's in our best interest to see if we can shore up those governments and make them work. Now, this is a touchy situation. There are people that would look at what we're doing in South America and say, hey, you aren't you just building an empire? We are imposing restrictions when we give loans. The IMF does that as well. Um, and to some extent, we're using our military there. It's not just the war on drugs. When you have violent crime, that's enough to cause people to flee a home that their families have been in for thousands of years. That's, that's a big deal. I, I don't think people understand that, that the extent of the big deal of somebody leaving for good a country that their family going back beyond memory has always been in it's a big deal when things get that rough so how do you deal with it how do we deal with the problems that other people have when they show up at our shore and this is a debate that's been going on since before the united states was the united states and we've got one end of the extreme, which is the Statue of Liberty, and the other end of the extreme, which is close the gates, nobody comes in. I got to change the subject. Okay, go for it. We have enough toilet paper. Yeah, finally, there's the a, manufacturers... There's a, paper, there's a toilet paper surplus. You said something a year ago. It is maybe the best predictor I have ever heard. Now, you said it tongue-in-cheek... But you said it seriously tongue-in-cheek, which is that once we get a glut of toilet paper, it will be a sign that our economy is back and roaring back to life. And we've got a glut of toilet paper. And our economy is back and roaring back to life. So It's true. But, and it's the same thing is true about chips. We po have Potato a, we chips? A, no, I silicon chips, which don't taste anywhere near as good, I yeah, understand. Need more salt. They got gold in them. Could have some kind of salts in it, but I don't think it would taste very good. Mm. 
rare the problem, earth salts. We're having, we had an amazing jump of 9.8% in retail sales last month. Now, it comes off of February when we had a 2.7% drop, so it's a little artificial. But retail sales are up, and they're growing very, very fast. And the biggest area of growth is in restaurants and, and hotels, which is to be expected because people are starting to go out to eat again. And if you've tried to go to a restaurant recently, you've seen that they generally fill up and people waiting on Saturday nights, Friday nights, just like they used to. Only the interesting thing is restaurants are actually seeing more business right now in the southern states than they saw before the pandemic, which means that people are just tired of eating at home. But we're having a big boom, and it's coming back in the retail area. And that's a very, very good sign. And it's going to continue to come back for a while because if people have money to spend, their toilet, their toilet paper is, their toilet paper bins are full. They don't need to go spend money on toilet paper anymore. And they're uh, now full up. And the same thing is going to happen on computer chips. When you say they didn't need to go and spend more money on toilet paper, do you believe that people are doing investment runs on toilet paper? Is that? They did. When people stocked up on toilet paper and paid extra money to buy more toilet paper because they were doing investment runs on toilet paper. Selling them on eBay. toilet paper. And there were toilet paper sales on eBay. There, there were. I think there were. It's amazing. And But the point is, it's computer chips right now, which are slow. We had a 9.8% rise in retail sales, but it, was, it would have been higher except for the fact that car and truck sales are down. And why are car and truck sales down? Not because people don't want to buy them, but because the specific models that they want to buy, the most popular models, Ford F-150 pickups specifically, is in short supply because the production has been limited because of a shortage of computer chips. We've talked about this before. There are basically two companies that make almost all the computer chips that go into most of the consumer products that we use. One of them is in Taiwan and one of them is in Korea. And we're, that's part of the infrastructure, by the way, Bill, that I really, really hope pass, passes. Now, there's a view on the infrastructure bill that could stay, should stick to roads and bridges and things like that. But I think it should be expanded to, to the billions of dollars that the government, that the administration wants to put into helping companies build fab centers. It's going to take us years to get there, but we will eventually get to the point where we have another glut of chips. And then, and then you'll know things are right. and good. By the way. We get these big innovation swings when we have gluts of chips like that. People figure out new ways of using them. There's an interesting point here. People ask if this, one of the big questions, as a matter of fact, the Economist headline magazine, the magazine headline was, can the, can the U.S. boom last? The answer is yes. Why? Because we've still got a shortage of things and we need to build for. We need to build more fab facilities, which is a lot of construction work. For chips, we need to build more highways and bigger highways. We need to build better cars so we can put more cars on the highway. We have to have better ways of getting goods and services around the country because we're at our limits, and we are committed to spending the money to get that done. Once we do that, that's that means this expansion has legs. And this, this may be a different perspective, but looking at an infrastructure in a way that's different, it used to be that we could increase the width of our highways. We could say, all right, we're going to make this uh, two-lane road is going to be a three-lane road or four-lane road. This four-lane road is going to be a six-lane road. This six-lane is going to be eight. And what we started discovering in, in traffic science is that when you went from six to eight, 
you're starting to get some really diminishing returns. You're not adding as much as you seem like you would be. Going from two to four makes a big difference. Going four to six, slightly less difference. And six to eight is almost no difference in traffic. This is why you don't see massive, massive multi-lane places very, very often because it doesn't increase the flow of traffic well. It's too hard to get from one end to the other because the exits are always going to be on this, on one side or the other, and you might need to go from one to the other. So what you said about making better cars, making self-driving cars becomes the infrastructure because computers are a lot better at handling traffic than we are. And if we want a lot of throughput, we want a lot of cars to be going through it, we can't have people on the steering wheels anymore because that's where the accidents occur. If, if all the cars on a four-lane highway were self-driving, and this has been tested with multiple different brands of self-driving cars mixed together, they can all go through the same area at a much higher speed than if people were doing it. So that's part of infrastructure as well. There's another part of infrastructure building that's very counterintuitive and people, conservatives particularly, tend to be against, and they were against in, in Texas, for example, and that is building another highway, building a separate highway that goes, it ultimately goes somewhere, but goes through a bunch of empty space. Texas 130 that loops around Austin is a prime example the reason we're getting a huge Tesla plan, and one of the reasons we're getting a huge Tesla's plan in there, by the way, if you haven't been down to the airport, to the, to the Austin airport, it's worth driving down there just to see the size of that Tesla plant that's it's being built just before the airport. Huge. We flew over it on the way out, and it is easily the, the largest square footage building I've ever seen. And it wouldn't be there had we not built Texas 130, which is a toll road. Building highways where there aren't highways causes... Things causes growth to occur because it, it gets around the constriction of traffic. Dell took most of its manufacturing facility and moved them out of uh, the new manufacturing facilities. They moved out of Austin because there was just too much traffic in Austin. It wasn't everything was jammed together and there was too much traffic. Now new facilities are coming up all all along 130, and it took an investment far in advance for people to do that. It took people losing their land and and giving up their rights to their land so the highway could be built. But ultimately what it's done is it's increased the value of the land all along the highway and it's increased the prosperity of Texas. And by the way, Texas had 99,000 new jobs created in the last month, which is something pretty impressive. That's, and a big chunk of those are in the areas that are growing right around Austin. That's huge. The fact that we're creating jobs rather than having jobs disappear is fantastic. And 99,000 that's a significant portion of the new jobs created for the country. Significant. We are, we are coming back and, and Texas is coming back fast. Another piece of infrastructure that's an odd one. Uh, this is something that you only see as infrastructure when you get to like anthropological and macroeconomic views. And that is the care of the disabled or the elderly. And by or, I mean and. We're coming up on a thing that is really going to hurt a lot of people. We have a large population in our country that is coming up on a time when they're going to need longer-term care. And the insurance companies have pretty much given up on it. 
There are a few companies that are still issuing long-term care insurance, but the vast majority of the big ones have gotten out of it because it's a sure loss for them. They know that no matter what they charge, they can't really charge enough to pay for this. And there are a lot of companies that have are already seeing difficulties with it. This is why they're out of that business. How do we how do we deal with this? Why do I say anthropological and macroeconomic infrastructure? There is a sign of strength around any economy that cares for its disabled and its elderly. It's a sign of economic prosperity to come as much as what's already happened. Countries that take care of their own do better. There's a psychological piece to this. There's, I mean, all of it's psychological, but the psychological piece to this is a sense of well-being and sure, sureness that you've selected the right thing. So how does the government do infrastructure on this level? Well, I would hope that they do it the way that they've worked with the SBA, the Small Business Administration, to help facilities that either do home health or setting up other facilities have access to lower expense loans to expand their facilities so that they can bring their prices down. And that's that's a key issue. We've seen long-term care prices go up significantly over the last 10 years. I mean, it's it's more than college. And college has gone up significantly over the last 10 years. Long-term care facilities have gone from about $1,000 a month to anywhere up to $10,000 a month. Six to 10000 is not unheard of, and 3000 is the low end of the spectrum per month to have a one-room place with, with care. And that, that change in price isn't because suddenly it's become much more advanced how we do it. It's that there are a lot more people that need it. We need a greater supply and we need to train the people that are going to be there. So this is another area where government can get involved, say, hey, this is a coming thing. We need more nurses. We need more attendants here. Uh, we'll, we will help with, with student loan repayments and so on. That's the sort of infrastructure spending that really needs to be looked at for long term because our infrastructure is not just physical anymore. That broadband side, the care of the disabled, care of the infirm, making our bridges well enough, building our cars better to use the roadways that are pretty good roadways. When we look at it compared to the rest of the world, we've got pretty good roads. They need repair. If you keep expanding them, they don't get better. So we have to spend our money smarter to say, all right, how do we do this? Do we build stuff into our roads that communicates with the self-driving cars? Well, yes, that's a well-known idea. Let's do it. Tell the cars what to expect before they get there. They can plan better. Well, that's infrastructure spending. And uh, that's the sort of thing that will lead us to a great boom rather than a slow deterioration of our trade with the rest of the world. We've got to keep these things up. And the only people that, the only group that has the authority to do it is the government. Now, I can say that, but then SpaceX is putting satellites up for broadband. But guess whose authority they're using? They're using yeah, the government. And also, SpaceX was selected to make, to take the next trip to the moon for NASA. Right. And they're doing it out of Texas, which I think is interesting. 
I don't know if they're going to launch out of Texas, but that's where they're building the, the ship, and that's where they're blowing it up. Boca Chica. They launch it. They launch it up. And they launch it and blow it up, and then they launch it and blow it up. And yeah. They launch it and blow it up. I've been down there and down there. been down there and seen it, and it's it's impressive. It's very impressive. And it's an interesting point. Boca Chica, where they do that, is on the other side of the Rio Grande. Yeah, but it's still in the United States. Yeah. And that's one of the problems, by the way, with building a wall across Texas to keep illegal immigration out, is the Rio Grande winds around all over the place, and some pieces of Mexico are on our side of the Rio Grande, and some pieces of the Texas are on the other side of the Rio Grande, and trying to build a wall involves taking an awful lot of private land and sealing it off from the rest of the country. I, I think people wanted a simple answer, and a wall sounds like a simple answer, but the complexity that arises from it is the difficulty. Is that Once you have the wall, you've got to keep it up. You've got to patrol it. And what do you do with the people that you catch? Well, you just spit them back out to the other side. Well, what if they don't belong on the other side either? Mexico doesn't like that. Well, how would you feel if Mexico started spitting Canadians back into Texas? Well, what are we supposed to do with them? Well, that's what we're doing to Mexico. Yeah, yeah. These, these, these Canadians are, you know, just as a side note, my, my wife is dual citizen Canadian. So all my Canadian jokes well, are, are well-based. They'd be very polite. <laughs> they are very polite. Back in the end, so they'd be very polite. Uh, there's another piece of good news out there that's floating around as we close in on commercial time. Retailers not only saw a dramatic increase in sales in March, the latest data we have on productivity is from February, but it's pretty impressive. Retailers are employing about 8% fewer people than they did before the pandemic, but they have about the 20% more sales per employee as a result of sales in a retail area of the United States economy are higher than they were before the pandemic. But they're with, doing with 8% fewer employees. Wow. That's called a rise. That's called this dramatic rise in productivity. Some of that is due to the fact that online sales are up 35%. But a lot of that is occurring in, in building and uh, home improvement areas and hardware stores. And the, the place is not occurring, by the way, is apparel and, and, and department stores, which are inherently inefficient. But somehow employers have done what they always do during a recession. They have increased productivity, and that's one of the things that we need to do. We've seen a 20% increase in productivity in retail sales in one year when well, now we go back go back historically the most we saw before was about 3.6 percent this is one of the reasons that we need to have a recession every once in a while is to force employers to look around and become more efficient yeah as long as everybody is working at full capacity you don't have time to stop the machines to make them better we we start slowing down our ability to grow fast. That that scalability concept. How do you take a factory that's producing something and produce more of it? Well, in order to do that, you have to take some of your best people off the line to set up the new line. Which means, what if your demand's really really crazy high right now? And what we're seeing across the nation is during the layoffs, the people that were laid off affected the people that weren't laid off. Either they laid off people that were already less productive or the people that were not laid off got more productive. And both of those things might be the reality. It's, it's some kind of average of all of that. I'm, I know a lot of people got laid off that were extremely good employees. 
but a lot of people got laid off that somehow the companies are able to do without. This happens when we have really booming economies. You hire more people to expand. It's that diminishing return again, though. Uh, our, our office is a great example. We can't just hire anybody. We need to make sure that they are quite literate, that they are able to understand some semi-advanced mathematics, finance math, that they need to be able to communicate well. And that's not everybody. There are people that, that have great skills in other areas that don't translate over into what we need. If we're moving along and we keep, we just say, hey, we're going to hire 12 more people to, uh, so that we can handle the phone calls better. Well, our training on those 12 more people is not going to be as good as the training on the few people that we hire in intervals when demand's not so crazy. That's true across the board. When we're in a, and we talked about this all the way through 2019 and into 2020, that we were reaching our limit on our ability to expand our own economy. We were, we were hiring everybody, whether or not they were the appropriate people for the job. And when we see that happen in the past, that usually means a recession's coming. We had a lot of reasons to believe that there was a recession coming in 2020. What we got was a lot more of one than we expected. And it was a lot more, what's a good word? Dynamic, <laughs> sudden, epic than what we were expecting. It was, it was painful for a lot of people. But because it was so painful for a lot of people, there was stimulus to ease some of that pain. And it's kind of like pulling the Band-Aid off fast. We now have an economy coming out of the, out of the pandemic that has been regeared, that has those machines that weren't working well. People said, let's fix them up and get them working well. And the employee layoffs were a must-do event. That's never a fun thing to do. But if you got to do it, that's the time to focus in on what you're doing and try to protect the core of what you're doing. We've done that. We need recessions occasionally. And that makes us bad guys in some ways to say we need downturns. But it's the case. And we got to play some commercials. So we need... We need tax increases and downturns. Oh, yeah. These McClure's, they've lost their brains as well as their hair. Um, we don't yep. need recessions now, and we don't need tax increases now. But we do need them at times. We just had the, the recession, so coming out of that, we don't need another one for a while. We're good. <laughs> and no, no seconds on that, please. Uh, the Europeans are going back for seconds. and Sorry, guys. Not... Not something I want to eat more of. And we'll be back on the other side with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. We've got about, I think, 10 minutes left in the hour. Yeah, we yeah. got some good news we need to announce. Go for it. The weekly unemployment claims, new unemployment claims, which is a surrogate for the number of layoffs that occurred in the week, have been running in the vicinity of 700,000 for a long time and above. 
we can it's been really hard to get below 700,000 695,000 was the previous record during the two that during the so-called great recession and this that, that week, happened one time where this has been nearly a year of way above that so the week ending April 10th the official well it's the advanced figure for seasonally adjusted initial claims was 576,000 which is a dramatic drop and it's the moving average is not down that much but it but it's an indication that we are finally seeing fewer layoffs. And I think we'll probably see that number continue to come down. It's been a worrisome number. It's been up so high for so long. Even though we net employed 916,000 more people than we did the previous month, we still have had a lot of layoffs going on. And I'm glad to see them start to trend downward. That means businesses are, are that are struggling, that are uh, on the edge, are no longer teetering over quite as fast. Five hundred thousand yeah. is still a lot of people to get laid off in a week, and, and this is it's a lot better than it was. This is something we wanted to bring into the conversation this week: is that what we're going through isn't over yet. We've been talking a lot about the good news out there, but we're still in the muck. We're still wading out of the swamp that is the pandemic, and we're still covered in mud. We've been talking about the productivity gains. We've talking about uh, good infrastructure concepts. The reality is, though, that people are still getting laid off at high rates, and that's not going to stop for a while. We also have some other looming dangers that we haven't quite figured out how to deal with, and that is that according to federal mandate right now, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are still not able to foreclose. If, if there's a mortgage that goes through them, the homeowners are not able to foreclose on anybody that is uh, past due. Now, if the mortgages are not through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, foreclosures continue. Uh, the same is true if you're a landlord. You can't evict a renter if your mortgage is through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. There are a lot of people that are past due on their mortgages, and there's a lot of money that's been hanging out in the sidelines, hoping, wishing, praying for all this cheap real estate to come up on the market. Well, the cheap real estate's not come back up on the market because the stimulus is still in order for it. It is not being foreclosed on so there is that still to come there will be some weird fluctuations in the real estate market in the future and there will be foreclosures an interesting fact about this is that it may affect the bottom line earnings of some of the banks the reality of the matter is that it's already affecting it just not all at once they're not being paid on the mortgages that they're in arrears on. That's why they're in arrears. So when they finally get to the point where they say we're foreclosing on this, that's going to hit the earning statements in a one-time type event, and it's going to look really bad. It's the same issue that we're already dealing with, though. And it's not affecting the bottom lines because our accounting doesn't add it all up and put it together. It's still going just quarter by quarter. So there are big issues that are still important to understand in the economy. There are still a lot of bad things that are waiting and, and expected to happen. But there is a tremendous amount of money waiting to step in. Uh, BlackRock estimated uh, two weeks ago that there's $250 billion waiting for the foreclosure market to start back up again to get all those cheap deals. When there's that much money waiting on the sidelines, they're not going to be cheap deals. 
<laughs> That's just a kind of a statement unless you get really lucky or you do a lot of research in a local area. So just, just recognize that. We've got another question. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. Uh, it says, uh, this is from Paul, um, manage crypto funds like mutual funds for crypto. Okay, first off, that, that's a vague question, but I think I know where you're going, Paul. Uh, cryptocurrencies are becoming more mainstream. At least they're becoming tradable on Wall Street. And there are certain institutions that allow you to buy with cryptocurrencies. There's, it's just hard to do all of your living off of cryptocurrency purchases. To understand what mutual funds are, however, you have to step back and say this is an organization, a concept that was developed in 1940 with the Investment Company Act. And it's got some pretty strict laws on the um, pricing of the net asset value. Now, there's ETFs that are coming out that kind of jump over that concept, and sometimes they're mutual funds and sometimes they're not. But the end result of this is that there's already tradable groups of cryptocurrency. It's dangerous. Just know that, that there's a lot of fluctuation in, the, in that particular market. There is no utility in cryptocurrency so far. There may be at some point, but there isn't. You can't use cryptocurrency as currency, so it's not something that has an intrinsic value. You can it's use only it to some extent, just not for everything. It's very hard, very, very hard, very, very difficult to use it effectively as a currency. So it has little or no intrinsic value. As a result of that, the only reason it's worth money is because people think it's worth money and people have bid it up in speculative frenzies. At some point, that speculative fr frenzy could turn around just as quickly as it went in the other direction. And the, for instance, gold is similar, except gold does have some intrinsic value. And you can gold use has it for electronics. Presence, at least. Yeah, yeah, electronics I mean, or jewelry. At least, at least gold has a physical presence, whereas cryptocurrency doesn't have any. And they show, every time there's a newspaper article about cryptocurrency, they show these coins. There are no crypto coins. They are strictly digital items that don't exist in the real world. I mean, anytime that you, if you, if you're an investor as opposed to a speculator, you buy something because you believe it'll be worth more in the future, because it has intrinsic value. You believe that this item will be more valuable in the future, and the fundamental reason it has more value in the future historically has been the fact that utility. In other words, if you if you buy shares in a company that makes tables from wood, they take raw wood and turn it into tables and chairs. The tables and chairs have a much higher utilization value in the society than the wood does. So if you look at the price of the wood plus the price of the labor plus the price of the equipment to turn it into tables and chairs, the company's making a profit. Cryptocurrencies do not represent anything that's making a profit. There is no profit. There is no loss. It's just strictly speculative gain. It's like collectibles. And the, another way of looking at this is some of the early currencies and early currencies that that still exist, like the cowrie shell is still used in Central Africa. It's a shell. It's a large sea snail shell, and there's a bunch of different types of them. But they were used in currency for international, before they had nations, trade across continents. And there's caches of cowrie shells in Asia that were mined in Africa from thousands of years ago. So this shipment back and forth 
this concept of using a common currency makes sense. The problem with the cowrie shell is its greatest collapse happened in the mid-1600s when they found a tremendous quantity of cowrie shells. The danger with cryptocurrencies is being a, a fallback currency for the world if the dollar is not there. Number one, there's not enough of them. If there were, it would be inflated. And number two, there's nothing to protect the value of it from a governmental uh, infiltration. Uh, it's not really infiltration. Is, it sounds nefarious. It's not a bad thing. And the Chinese, for instance, control about 50% of the Bitcoin market. Why? Well, that's where most of the miners are and the government's involved. So understanding that even though you're going to something, a currency that's not based in a government, a government can affect it. That happened with the Dutch and the cowrie shells. That's part of the reason why the collapse occurred when it did. And we're about out of time for this, this week. Uh, I recommend people looking up cowrie shells just for the fun of it. It starts with the word cow, like the moo creature. Um, look back at it. It's interesting. We're about out of time. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.